Well, hi, Auckland AV. My name's Rowan, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an exciting day today as we start the book of Judges. You know, the average human being, according to a UK study, knowingly wrongs someone else 16,250 times in their life. That's a lot. That's more than five times a week. From dropping your rubbish in your neighbor's bin and using someone else's Wi-Fi through to taking on someone else's wife or even their life. As you live through the pages of history or even just today's newspaper, humanity as a whole is a mess. The things we've done, the, the people we've hurt, the lives we've destroyed, the massacres we've started, the wars we've entered into and the atrocities humanity have committed. But if we're honest, the same messiness that characterizes humanity characterizes my life and yours as well, at least to some degree. We cause violence to friendships, display hatred to those who succeed or excel. If our minds and motives were rated like a movie, I can guarantee you every single one of us will be rated 18 plus. Offensive behavior, scenes of cruelty, graphic violence, explicit sex scenes, it would be horrific. Well, as we start our study in the book of Judges today, we're going to see it's a book of people just like us. People whose lives aren't all together, whose actions are far from pure. Sugar and spice and all things nice are not found in the book of Judges. We find a people who need to be saved from one another and from themselves. And I've got to say, much like our lives, it's not a pretty story, not at all. It's a story of war and brutality, of mutilation of people, stabbing of kings, tent pegs through temples. It's a story of moral compromise. A wife betrays a husband. A father sacrifices his daughter where a woman is raped and dismembered. It's horrific. It's a story where even the good guys do stupid things. Now, what we find in the pages of this book of Judges is a gruesome tale of a messy, messy people, but a merciful God. Well, the book begins as we look back at the death of Joshua. Judges 1 verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? The story so far is a story of God's people. The descendants of Abraham, they were recipients of a promise that would control the storyline of humanity. Do you remember the promise in Genesis 12? The Lord said to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Through Abraham, a, a new nation would be born. His descendants would be as, as many as the stars in the sky. Every nation on the face of the planet would be blessed through him. They would find rest from their enemies and, and their slavery and find their own land. This is the controlling promise of the whole Bible of all human history. And you can see as it moves from creation through to the getting out of the Exodus and all the way through the pictures of God's story. It's this story of promise. From that point on, God then raises up leaders to take them into this promised land that he promised Abraham and his descendants. But there's a message here for us all. In each of the leaders that God raises up to lead his people, there's something they all have in common. And that's death. Three out of the first seven books of the Bible start with the death of a great leader. Exodus is the death of Joseph. The book of Joshua is the death of Moses. And now into Judges, we find the death of Joshua. God's showing us 
We can't solve our own messiness. God's leaders can't solve it. Each hope, each leader that they have dies. It's always been that way and it always will be. The only one who saves is God. God saves his people. That's what the message of Judges is pointing us to. The solution to life's messiness is not a stronger military leader, nor a smarter intellectual leader or a gifted spiritual leader. Nor is it freedom from leaders in general. As the book of Judges walks us through this part of history, you become more and more convinced that the solution to life's messiness is found in God and in God alone. Only He can save. Well, as chapter 1 opens, God's people finally get to inhabit the promised land. To fulfill the promises made to Abraham, they've come out of Egypt and they've gone through the Red Sea and they've been brought in the desert and they've come across and they've entered into the promised land. God's people finally get to be in this land that they were promised. Look with me at verse 4. When Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him and struck down the Canaanites and the Perizzites. When Adonai Bezek fled, they pursued him, seized him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. For Israel, this is it. Finally, they're in. It's it's excitement. It's it's joyful. They've entered into the promised land and it's great. But if (laughs) you're anything like me, it's part of this story that just doesn't sit quite right. God might be fulfilling his promises, but... Is holy war wiping out other nations on the way in okay? As we start into this stage of of God's people and his history, I want to say three quick things about holy war and what God is doing. Number one, evil always deserves to be punished. Canaan deserves here to be punished for their wickedness. Listen to what the king himself says about their actions. Verse 7. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I have done. Even those that were punished, the kings of the other nations recognized that they were being punished for their wickedness. I think our issue is that we so often underestimate evil. We think a slap on the wrist should should just fix evil. But you look at the history of humanity, evil so corrupts our nature and our way of life that that nothing and no one is exempt from it. And only wholesale destruction can remove it. That's what happened in the flood. That's what God is doing to the Canaanites throughout Israel. There is a penalty to be paid for rebellion against him. And the Canaanites felt that through Israel coming into their land. That's the first point. The second point, though, is that God owns everything. God owns all the land and was fulfilling his promise. The land of Canaan didn't belong to the Canaanites. No matter who they thought their gods were, Yahweh, the true God of Israel, was the true and living God. This was his land. This was his earth. And and these people, Israel, are his people. And everyone on the face of the planet belongs to him. Not one person is entitled to any of it. So humanity, we're actually squatters. We're living naturally in rebellion against the landlord. And if the landlord should decide to boot some of the squatters out and invite another set in because he promised them he would, then he's 100% entitled to. He hasn't caused any wrong. There's more to say there, but 
that helps you understand everything is God's. And then thirdly, as we think about what's happening here, God cares about people. He punishes here so he can maintain the relationship that he's promised. See, the God of the Bible is an incredibly generous God. He loves his people. He he, he promised land and descendants and blessings to Israel. He promised to be their God and save them from slavery so they could be his people. God is the God who keeps his promises and longs for us to do the same. They promised they would. (laughs) But God knew the temptation to wander away from him, to other false gods. He knew that would be too much and he knew their hearts and he loved them. So his command was to drive out the other nations completely, completely. So they wouldn't fall into the destructive temptations of worshipping false gods that the nations around them had done. It was for Israel's sake. So they might worship the true and living God. And then through them, God would bless all people on earth. But the joy of following God's command for his people as they entered into the land was short-lived. Verses 17 to 34 are a catalogue of Israel's failure to drive. Failure to drive the nations around them out. Look with me from verse 21. The Benjaminites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. The Jebusites have lived among the Benjaminites in Jerusalem to this day. Manasseh failed to take possession. Ephraim failed to drive out. Zebulun, verse 30, failed to drive out. 31, Asher failed to drive out. 33, Natali did not drive out. 34, the Amorites forced the Danites into the hill country. It, It just gets worse and worse. They were supposed to drive out the nations and wipe them out around them, but it seems they didn't. Why is that? Well, at first reading, verse 19 might point you to thinking that it wasn't their fault. Have a look at verse 19. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. Now you hear that and you go, iron chariots? I mean, I've never driven an iron chariot. I don't know if you have. Don't know if you call your car an iron chariot or your bike, or whatever it is you have. But really, are iron chariots impenetrable to the God of the universe? Isn't the God of the universe the one who is driving out the nations around them? It doesn't matter whose legs they are on the chariot, or what horse is is kind of towing them, or what language they speak, because God is the God of all of it. Wasn't it God driving out the nations? I mean, are they saying that the iron chariots are too strong for the creator of the universe? Well, there's something else going on here. Why couldn't they drive out the people? Look with me at verse 28. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Did you hear that? The issue wasn't that Israel couldn't drive them out. It's that they wouldn't drive them out. It wasn't compassion or mercy that stopped them from driving these nations out. It was greed, forced labor. I mean, imagine what we could do with with a free labor force. God's command is really kind of more like a guideline, wasn't it? Have you you ever found yourself saying that? I mean, it doesn't really mean this. With a bit of compromise, we can have a free labor force and that'll make us rich and we'll get an even better lifestyle. Imagine the buildings we could build and the roads we could have and the riches that we'd have. It'd be so good. And so they didn't drive them out. They used them as forced labor. And before long, they were treating themselves and their leaders to bring about 
the promises of God through this forced labor. Convenience and comfort trumped obedience. They had a half-hearted discipleship. They didn't have the guts to take God at his word. Oh, it, it seemed brave on the outside. We'll let these people stay at great risk to our faith and our future, right? Because we think our way will, will get us really what God's promised us, but even more. What seemed like bravery was stupidity. It was taking up residence in a field full of landmines. Let me ask you, where are you seeking success in your life? What is it that will make you successful or comfortable? And how are you trying to obtain that success? Is it by taking God at his word and trusting him through the ups and downs of life and the sufferings that come? Or is it by, no, I'll do it in my own strength. I'll do it by cutting corners. I'll do it by not doing exactly what God says in his word, but, but kind of just my way to bring about things that seem a bit more, you know, reasonable and realistic. <laughs> if you're like me, you'll find yourself on your front foot too much and your knees too little. Your to-do list keeps growing and your time in the Word and in prayer keeps shrinking. How arrogant I am to think I can achieve what God wants without Him and maybe in other ways than He has said. As the nations took up residence amongst Israel, so did the nation's gods. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bosham and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I'll never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the people who are living in this land and you are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? This is no slap on the wrist kind of, this is, this is like sleeping with a prostitute on the wedding night. And as we hit the next section in, in chapters um, 2 to 3, 6, um, we get this story again as a kind of a flashback and a diagnosis on what has gone wrong. Have a look at verse 11. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who'd brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They infuriated the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths. What have you done? done Israel you're about to enter you're entering into the promised land all of God's promises are happening he said he would do it just go and do it but they don't oh you're like not again <laughs> what are these people like <laughs> and then you realize they're just like me and you sometimes people think that all religions are the same that religion no matter what it is kind of gives you a sense of morality but what I want you to realize is the Canaanite religion was anything but moral. I want to read for you a section of a commentary in the book of Judges from a guy called Dale Ralph Davis. This is his book here. And um, he tells us a bit more about what the Canaanite religions were like. Let me read a little bit for you. Many readers of Genesis 1 are unaware that they hold in their hands a piece of revolutionary propaganda. It propounds the novel idea that sex is a human activity. This God of Israel is strange. Yahweh has no wife, no consort. Biblical religion holds that you will find Yahweh acting in history, in the creation and the flood, call and preservation of the patriarchs, deliverance from Egypt, cutting off of the Jordan, not pulsating in nature, though nature too is under his sway. Yahweh sits on a throne high and lifted up from which he rules and creates 
and preserves and redeems. He does not lounge in some celestial bedroom copulating with his feminine divine counterpart. It's become so difficult for us to grasp how different, how holy the God of the Bible is. But the Canaanites were not so. Neither was Baal their God. Baal was the God of storm and futility. And for the Canaanites, of course, fertility was the name of the game. Fertility of crops, of livestock and family. Baal, the nature God he was, naturally had his female consort, Ashtoreth or Ashtar. Now in Canaanite theology and agriculture, the fertility of the land depended upon the sexual relationship between Baal and his consort. The revival of nature was due to sexual intercourse between Baal and his partner. But the Canaanite faithful didn't simply sit back and say, let Baal do it. There was no let go and let Baal. Instead, their watchword was serve Baal with gladness all ye glands. (laughs) Hence, the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution as part of their worship. A Canaanite man, for instance, would go to a Baal shrine and have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes serving there. The man would fulfill Baal's role and the woman Ashtar's. The idea was that the the copulating of the worshipper and and of the holy would encourage the divine couple, Mr. and Mrs. Baal that is, to do their thing and thus rain, grain, wine and oil would all flow again. Through sacred prostitution, it was possible to assist, to encourage and to bring on the great orgasm of Baal in the sky. Thus, Baal would make all things new. However, nothing would happen unless this fertility power was properly worshipped. Now, if you can kind of imagine for a moment what it was like being there in Israel with the Canaanites all around you, you can imagine why the Israelites might have been lured towards worship of Baal. The Canaanites would have just been encouraging them, hey, come along and and check out our God. And you know what guys are like. Imagine when the Canaanite neighbor invites his Israelite friend to explaining Baalism, right? Or, Or five steps to a better crop fertility course. Now, when it was popular, they go to the high places and get to all sorts of things. But here's the thing. It would tear the guts out of society. Marriage is broken up. It would destroy trust between husbands and wives, let alone their relationship with a God who'd already saved them. As you keep reading through the story of Israel, it's not long before Israel were sacrificing their own children to these gods. Listen to Psalm 106. They did not destroy the people as the Lord had commanded them, but mingled with the nations and adopted their ways. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood and the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So the land became polluted with blood. They defiled themselves by their actions and prostituted themselves by their deeds. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against his people and he abhorred his own inheritance. You know, sometimes we think that these Israelites and the Canaanites were just simple minded folks. No one would do that today. And how many children are sacrificed to the God of comfort and security at family planning centers all over our country? These these people aren't simplistic fools. They saw what the Canaanites did and it looked like it would bring them satisfaction. And they wanted it. The Israelites wanted it more than the God who made them and saved them. Now, I don't think that we're drawn to the same fertility gods and statues that they were in that day. But if you look carefully, we see comfort and security and popularity and identity from all sorts of places and all sorts of people and worst of all from ourselves. Israel's cry was, we couldn't drive them out. They had such strong chariots. (laughs) 
but in reality they would not drive them out. The things of the Canaanites just looked so good. How easy it is to put on the external appearance of a Christian, to ask God to coexist with the idols of our hearts. The reason God was so dead set determined to drive out the nations from Israel was because he loved them. The best possible thing for them, the best possible thing for you and I is to let God be the Lord of our lives. He deserves to be the ruler over every area, not just some of them. He made us. He knows what's best. If you want to be brave, if you want to stop being a half-hearted follower of God, we need to look honestly at every area of our lives, our families, our careers, our possessions, our ambitions, our money, our time. And we need to ask two questions and they're worth writing down. Question number one is, am I willing to do whatever God says about this area of my life? Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area of my life? And the second question is, am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area of my life? Am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area of my life? Where either answer is no to those questions. There's an area of our lives and our hearts we've, we've opened up or already given over to an alternative God. And we see in the book of Judges and throughout the, the history of God's people and throughout human history, the result of putting ourselves on the throne is catastrophic. So, how do we make sure that we don't do the same? Well, the answer is a multi-generational answer, but it starts with you. Come with me, Judges chapter 2, verse 8. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors, i.e. they died. After them, another generation rose up, who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Now you can't hold Joshua's generation responsible for the next generation's relationship with God. Uh, that Joshua's generation was going well, they set off into the land, but then they rejected. It's like with children, you know, you, you teach your kids the best you can, how they respond is up to them. But did you notice the second part? They didn't know what God had done for Israel. Why is that? Why didn't they know what God had done? Why was not that something that they, they grew up with, recognizing how great their God was? I'll tell you why. They had not been taught. In the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses stands, God's people on the edge of the promised land, about to enter in, he tells them, make sure you remind your children, teach your children uh, what God's word says, to see the world through God's eyes and to understand his life-giving word. But they obviously hadn't done it. Friends, this is why it's so important that if you have kids, to, to build teaching your kids into the fundamental bricks of life, to, to pray with your children, uh, to, to kind of point out the things of the world and how we understand them and what God says about them. We can't outsource our, our training of our children. Otherwise, the next generation will forget. Training the next generation about who God is and what he's done um, is so, so important. That's why here at EV, we teach kids' church at an age-appropriate level the same material that, that we're looking at in church. So that parents can ask, what have you learned? And how are you understanding that? As you, as you go home, you can chat with your kids or with kids that you see at church. 
It's why youth ministry is so important, to help young people to remember what matters, what God has done, who He is, and who Jesus is as the fulfillment of the whole Bible. It's so, so important. And kids, if you're watching today and listening, or youth, if you're listening and you think, ah, my parents go on about Christianity, maybe you don't want to tell them it's a bit stale or how you feel and be real with them. But the reality is they want you to know the God who made you. Do you know that 80% of people who are Christians became Christians before the age of 18? There's a massive plug here for our kids' church. If you're interested in serving in kids or in youth ministry or in teaching young people, there's a massive need. And if you have kids or, or when you have kids, make sure you pass on the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. That you open the scriptures, that you, that, that you, you talk about your weaknesses and how you fail and you apologize and, and you express grace to them. Tell them of the God who never fails and how good he is and the God who loves you even when you fall and loves them even when they fall. Don't teach them just moralistic lessons of you need to do this, you need to do that. But show them the savior of the universe who's laid down his life for them. No, teach your children. That's the warning of the passage. That's why this generation went off. But there's another warning here, irrespective of your parents. Don't be the generation that walks away from God. Don't blame your parents as if it was all their fault. Don't use their slackness or indifference or the hardships of of your upbringing and all of the real and true horrible feelings you might have experienced growing up. Don't use those as an excuse to say, oh, it's too much. No, look at what God has done for you. Look at the cross where Jesus died. Look at the way God kept his promises at massive cost to himself throughout human history. The king of the universe. The one who made Mount Everest, who invented light, who dreamed up DNA, who allows you to take every breath, died so you could live. Now, don't make the mistake of the generation that didn't know or didn't want to know God. Spend your time understanding Him, no matter how bad your parents have been, no matter how hard it's been. Come and see the God who loves you perfectly. as we get to the end of this section, we see the writer of the book of Judges showing us a cycle of the whole book. It begins this cycle that we see through each of the episodes, each of the narrative stories throughout the whole book of Judges. We're going to see it over and over again. God's people reject him. Then God punishes them for their own good. So they'll recognize what they've done and they won't keep going in that direction. They kind of call out to God and repent and say, God, please help us. We're sorry. God then sends a judge. The judge comes in and, and saves people. That's what a judge is. It's, it's a savior, a leader here, usually a military leader in this instance. And the judge saves God's people. And there's this period of peace while the judge reigns. Then the judge dies. People forget about God. They reject him and they start the cycle all over and over again. Except each time it happens through the book of Judges, it gets worse and worse and worse. The book of Judges isn't just a cycle, it's a downward spiral. It's like a flushing down the toilet and a sucking out of Israel and their worship of the true and living God. It's a great reminder of how we need to treat God. Look with me at the way the writer of Judges summarizes it. Judges chapter 2 verse 14. And the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them. And they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever 
the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and had sworn to them. And so they suffered greatly. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their fathers who'd walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers, going after other gods to worship and bow down to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. Holy war seemed harsh. And if I'm honest, so does God's judgment. Everyone's like, we don't like the idea of a God who judges. But what we see here is, it's actually his amazing mercy. If he didn't care for his people, he just let them go off. Like, like some child who was never punished at all, was never brought into line, never realized the consequences of their actions. To let Israel keep going and keep rejecting the God who made them without experiencing the fruit of their own stupidity and rejection would have resulted in them losing everything. Completely wiped out. No blessing, no land, no great nation. Those promises that God gave to Abraham's descendants. If he didn't allow them to experience the fruits of their labor, none of that would have happened. But God calls people back to himself through all sorts of ways. And sometimes that hurts. We've just seen that as we've looked at the book of 1 Peter. As Judges progresses, the rebellion gets worse and worse. The oppression heavier and heavier, the repentance less and less heartfelt, and the judges themselves more and more flawed. And what we're going to see in this book of Judges is we need something better than a flawed and sinful judge, than a a ruler to come and do an okay job. We need something more permanent than a leader whose death is their end. We need something or someone that can deliver our souls as well as our bodies and, and fix our relationship with the God who made us so we would get a new heart and live God's way. What we need is the mercy of God to rescue us from our messiness. We can never make our way to be better people. We can never do it by brute force or just saying, be better people. We need God to step in. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul records that something amazing happened amongst the people of Thessalonica in the early first century AD. That they, and I'll read 1 Thessalonians 9, They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The Thessalonians saw what we have seen, God's mercy displayed on a Roman cross. The God who who stepped into the world and, and did not have death as his end, but rose again victorious. The God who promises us new hearts, the God who took the penalty for our sin in our place and offers you and me life and forgiveness, justice delivered and mercy poured out. The Thessalonians saw Jesus. And it's my prayer that today as we look at the book of Judges and as we look at it over the next few weeks and see this downward spiral, that more and more we will crave to see Jesus for how good he is. The book of Judges will consistently show us how messy we are. 
but what an amazing saviour Jesus is. The message is really clear. Jesus is the saviour you and I need. He's the only one that can rescue us from sin and sorrow and shame. He's the only one that's dealt with the coming wrath that we deserve and taken it on himself. The book of Judges points us to the cross, to the solution to our problem in the person of Jesus. So today, won't you come to the altar of the cross where Jesus faced what you and I deserved and experienced God's wrath and judgment for us and thank him. Trust his death in your place and experience the freedom that comes from knowing that despite our messiness, we have an incredibly merciful God who loves us and who died for us. Jesus is the saviour you and I need. Let's pray. Father God, today as we see the messiness of humanity and of your people and of ourselves, as we think through how often it is that we cause pain and hurt in the lives of people and how often we turn our backs on you, we ask that you'd help us to see even more clearly our need for a saviour. Show us, Lord, where we fall down. Correct us from our mistakes and point us to the judge we need whose name is Jesus, the one who is judged on our behalf. May you enlarge in our view of him. May you captivate us by how amazing he is. Would you help us to see more and more your love shown through Jesus, that we might be forgiven and called your children and, and live for you. Help us not to make the mistakes of our parents or think we're entrapped by them. Help us to take the opportunities to tell others of this news of Jesus and, and teach it to our kids and help people to understand who God is and what he's done. Lead us away from giving in and help us to come to you and experience great joy at the altar of the cross where Jesus gave his all. We pray this in his great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.